Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Um, before, we, before we get into um, what we're talking about today, um, my mom just got a text message uh, that um, one of our, the members of our church, actually my grandfather, Richard Pruitt, um, if you've met him, uh, he's just being rushed to the hospital with um, some kind of heart thing. Um, my family, as some of you know, has actually lost a handful of people over the last couple of weeks, um, some to COVID and some to cancer. Uh, so could we just take a moment together collectively and pray for my grandfather who's experiencing some kind of heart issue? Jesus, we lift up grandpa. We lift up Richard to you. And we ask right now, without any knowledge of what is happening, that you would interrupt whatever is whatever issue is happening in his body right now and we ask that the power of god would rest on him and so fill him that uh that he would be healed in the name of jesus we pray for my grandma ida that she would have the peace of god would just rest over her especially in light of having lost a brother and a sister and a sister-in-law in the last couple of weeks Lord, remove any dread and fear, and in its place we command the peace of God to rest in her heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, man. Um, that's like a weird thing to get right before you get up and preach, right? Um, but we'll just go on with the program as usual, because I do have jokes. Um, <laughs> joke number one. Hey, happy nondescript spooky fall festival to you today. Um, uh, I know that it's a little bit weird um, having uh, Halloween fall on a Sunday. It happens every now and again. And Halloween can be a little bit of a tricky sort of time for us as Christians. Um, did anyone here grow up in church in the 80s and 90s like I did as a child? Yeah, so you reaped the benefits of the satanic panic and all of the stuff that happened there. And, uh, and I know that we, we can feel a little bit strange about how it is that we're supposed to respond. I remember one time in 1999, uh, Halloween happened to fall on a Sunday morning, and I sat in the second row of our little, um, our small Pentecostal church, and listen to the pastor at the time regale us with the origins of Halloween. And there are images that I still cannot get out of my mind from that sermon. I'm pretty sure he ripped it all straight from like a Chuck Smith propaganda movie. Um, and it sufficiently scared the heck out of me. Um, I'm not going to do that today. Um, so I just want to say that if you and your family uh, choose to go out trick-or-treating tonight, have a great time. Um, get lots of candy. And if you choose not to participate in this holiday, also no worries. I just think everybody, let's follow our convictions and also be mindful of the very present reality of evil and darkness and death that is being celebrated during this holiday season. But I would also encourage each of us to consider how we can use this opportunity this night to, um, as an opportunity to get to know your neighbors and to be the hospitable presence of Jesus in your neighborhood. There's not a lot of nights during the year where you have a whole bunch of your neighbors come and knock on your door um, and smiling at you and that you can give them candy. So I would encourage you to think about how you can be hospitable in your neighborhood. 
Today is also a family worship Sunday, uh, which means that we have the kiddos in the room with us or out in the cafe with us. And so each time that we have these family worship Sundays, it happens on the fifth Sunday of the month. We shut down our vineyard kids for just that week. And uh, things tend to get a little bit squirrely in the room. And that's okay, right? Like, we're okay. Kids are part of this church too. So um, if you need to go out in the cafe, feel free. But I'm going to keep it pretty short today. Uh, I always intend to keep it short. <laughs> um, so this morning, what we want to talk about, actually, is we just want to do a little bit of work on theology. Um, now, for many of us, as soon as you hear the word theology, it can actually be a bit of a scary word. Like, it might conjure an image of a monk in deep study, you know, learning all of the Latin and, and so forth. Um, or for others, it just makes you feel like uh, you're about to fail a test and be exposed as a heretic. I still have that feeling frequently. Um, but theology is simply what we think about God. It's how we understand who he is. It's trying to make sense of the story that God is writing and how we are a part of it. That's really all the theology is. And, but it, this thing, this theology thing, is very important that we give ourselves to trying to get right. See, we have all been given ideas over the course of our life about who God is and what he cares about. And our theology, for most of us, is largely constructed by piecing together things that we have heard over the course of our lives, for better or for worse. So most of us operate more from an assumed theology than from a strict, formal theological grid. And, very, and, and likely, most of our sort of assumed theology is pretty similar to each other. We have likely the big bucket items kind of all in a row. Um, but we also have probably unique theology. Each one of us have some assumptions that we have been given through conversations we've had with other people or books that we've read or personal experiences or traumas that we have gone through or how you were raised or what kind of church that you have been a part of. Um, in, in the past. And the problem is that in my experience, many people's assumed theology is different than what the Bible actually teaches. And that's not to say that anyone here has a perfect theology. I, I believe that on any given Sunday, there's probably 15% of what I say is like not quite right. Um, and if I knew which 15% that was, I would fix it, but I don't. So you just sort of get the, my best intentions. Um, and so, so here is sort of the idea that I think many people in our culture, in our world, believe that we believe. If we could put up that slide. I think that most people think that this is what you think as a Christian, that we are all on planet Earth, this beautiful and complicated planet that is full of... Um, humans doing amazing things and humans doing horrific things. And that depending on what you do over the course of the span of years that God gives you, when you die, you will be judged by God and you will either go to a good place or you will go to a bad place. Or maybe, you know, there's a little bit more nuance and there's a recognition that it's not just about whether you do more good things or more bad things, but it's really about what you believe in, you know, whether or not you have the right belief system or how strongly and how well you believe these things about God. And if you have those right beliefs, then you get to go to a good place instead of a bad place. And in this assumed theological framework, 
The goal of this life is to live in such a way that you end up going to the right place once it's all over. Any issues with that? So, (laughs) it's a trick question, isn't it? Um, So the, the, the problem with this assumed theology is that it's really not what the Bible is primarily about. Now, this theology, it taps into something that is deeply human. It's a a human desire that all of us have, the desire for heaven. All of us have this desire wired into our DNA. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks to it beautifully. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here that, that the, the longing for eternity has been placed into every human heart. We all long for eternity. We all long for some kind of utopia. There is in each of us a sense that things here are not how they should be and that there must be more to life than this, or at least there must be more to life beyond this. And our assumed theology tells us that we will finally experience that utopia someday when we die and we go somewhere else. But what if God's vision for our lives is not merely for us to escape this messy world, but rather that we would join him in his project of making all things new? Um, Our friends at the Bible Project down in Portland made this really wonderful video that we are going to show for all the kids and, frankly, for all the um, uh, grown-ups. And I think that this video teaches this subject better than I ever could. So let's go ahead and watch a cartoon. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. 
Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. 
Should we just do ministry time? <laughs> Isn't that good? I find the Bible Project is so immensely helpful for understanding just some of these complicated things in the Bible. I can't commend it highly enough to you. And what we saw in that video is the simple yet profound story that God has, uh, this story that God has been writing since the beginning. Um, And I think that for some of us, probably, that video may have disrupted a little bit of your assumed theology and may have messed with how you kind of see and understand the story. And so we see on chapter one of the Bible, from the very beginning, God is, as, as God is creating everything, we see the, the heavens and the earth that are being formed, that before he gets to work, sort of ordering the world, his presence, his Holy Spirit is hovering above the chaotic waters. And the story of creation on the very first page of the Bible is really all about God making order and beauty out of something that has that is chaotic, that is turbulent. Um, And we're not really sure why it's turbulent or chaotic, but those are the images that are, that are given to us. And after each act of creation, it's more, it's more ordering than it is sort of creating things. Um, He looks at what he's done and he declares, this is really good. This is like on track. This is where we're supposed to go. And the culmination of his creative act is to take dust from the ground and to form it into something resembling himself and then to breathe his breath, his life-giving breath, his Holy Spirit into this dust. And from that, human is created. And so humans were not, uh, were not just formed as a visible representation of God, but we carry the very breath of God. We have something of the spark of divinity inside each one of us. We are all unique in his creation. And then he gives humans a purpose. He says, what I, I've created you to do something really important, to spread the goodness of this garden that you are living in across the rest of the world. And so humans were to do the same kind of work that God did in the very first page of the Bible. They, they were supposed to creatively order a chaotic world and make it like the place where God's presence overlaps with ours. And the Bible has this really great word for that kind of reality. It uses this word shalom, uh, which is a Hebrew word that we commonly you know, think of it as peace. But we don't understand just sort of the, the depth of what this word carries. It's not just the the absence of conflict, but that it goes way deeper than that. Um, I love how Cornelius Plantinga uh, writes about it in uh, in his book, uh, A Breviary of Sin. He writes, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And so the purpose of humans is to spread this shalom, the way things ought to be. What we were created to do is to look out into a world of chaos and disorder and say, that's not how things are supposed to be, and to bring about the shalom of God into it. But how did it go for humans? How did it go for our first parents in that garden? Not great, right? And instead of spreading God's shaloms, humans rebelled against God and chose their own way. And this is called sin. 
It's an undoing of God's shalom. Sin distorts what was God's vision for humanity and all of creation. And this is the problem that continues to this day, that we have a longing for something more, for eternity, for heaven, but we demand it in our own terms and according to how we think we'd like it to be. We all have this longing for some kind of utopia, but we want to define what that utopia is supposed to look like for ourselves. So Plantinga continues, describes sin, he, he describes sin in his book as the vandalism of shalom. It works against the, the purpose that God created us for. He writes this, the story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It puts asunder what God has joined together and joins together what God has put asunder. Like some devastating twister, corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back toward the formless void from which it came. The vandalism of shalom is present today. I mean, just look around. We see it everywhere, right? It's a reality that we release, that we unleash on each other and on God's good world, and it breaks down relationships and it destroys people. And God hates sin. He hates this vandalism. The story of the Bible is the story of God healing this world and trying to remove all of the vandalism from it. So then you fast forward from Genesis all the way through Israel's story to this guy Jesus that we read about in the New Testament. And when Jesus arrives on the scene in Mark chapter 1, he comes declaring good news that the time has finally come for heaven to invade earth through him. And he goes about working against all of the vandalism of sin. And this is how he does it. He heals diseases and pain. He restores people who were outcast because of sin, both outcast because of their own sin and outcast because of the way that others had sinned against them. He casts out these evil entities, sometimes called demons, that have taken up residence in human bodies. He confronts societal evils of racism and exclusion by like literally turning the temple upside down. And in many ways, we resonate with God's heart that hates sin. We are aligned with him in his hatred of this vandalism. We hate the problems of evil in our world, and we long for an eternity and hope for some future where sin no longer surrounds us. The problem is, because, because we have such distorted vision, we don't understand sort of how much that vandalism and that sin infects us. So we look out at the world and we see the devastation of racism and segregation and genocide, and we want that out of our world. And we demand that God does something about it. And God also hates these things, but God is so serious about dealing with them that he wants to go way upstream and not just deal with genocide as a big issue, but wants to confront the contempt and the pride and the rage that is in the human heart behind all of these evils. We as a society have looked at the exploitation of women and the rampant abuse by men in power, and we know that it is wrong and must be dealt with. This cannot stand any longer. And God agrees, but God wants to confront the lust that is in each one of our hearts and to show that each of us are guilty of the same acts of sin in our own imaginations. You see, we want God to remove the vandalism of this world, 
but we want him to do it in a way where he doesn't have to get rid of us too. The problem is that the world has been vandalized and that we are vandalized, that this vandalism is in us. And Jesus is so serious about this that he decides he's going to roll up his sleeves and he is going to clean up this mess. And here's how he does it. He lives an uncorrupted, unvandalized life, the life that you and I, all of us, were designed to live ourselves but constantly fail at. It's a life of sacrificial love that is entirely other-centered, that only gives, that is only concerned for the needs of other people. And this life ends up being so offensive to the vandalized humans around him that in our distorted and corrupted understanding, we decide to remove him as the problem because he's really just revealing what's happening on the inside of us. And we put him to death on a cross. And our sin thinks that it has the victory. It is put to death the only uncorrupted one. What we see is that on the cross, actually, Jesus allows the vandalism to overwhelm him and to crush him. And the full weight of human failure and depravity and evil exhausts its power on the crucified God. And it's devastating. But we see that three days later, in the resurrection of Jesus a new power is unleashed on the world, the power of the age to come, the power of heaven invading earth. This resurrection, it brings new life to a new humanity, and it's God's expression of love and commitment to our good world. It offers us hope of a new life that is free of vandalism. So while vandalism and evil and corruption thinks that it was able to crush God once and for all, Instead, through resurrection, resurrection power is unleashed in our world. That's pretty good news, isn't it? And just as the first humans that were in the garden were commissioned by God to spread the shalom of, of the garden across this good, chaotic world, in Matthew, at the end of the story, Jesus commissions his followers, the new humanity, to go throughout the rest of the world and to spread the new shalom of resurrection power to all people. And so we are commissioned to spread the life of the age to come by doing the same stuff that Jesus did. Not by holy huddling and waiting for a day when we finally escape this world and go to glory by and by, but actually to go out and to heal sick bodies and to share the good news and to build businesses that, com that contribute to human flourishing and to confront societal evils and injustices. We are commissioned by God to go out and feed hungry bodies and to love our enemies. We are sent by God to care for the poor and the disabled, and we are to resist the vandalism of sin. And the story of the Bible isn't about how to remove you from this messy place and get you into heaven. The story of the Bible is all about the power of heaven resurrecting you and me and propelling us out into a messy world to see it renewed. And Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. Is anybody with me? Is this good news? And that's ultimately how the story will end. The final picture in Revelation is that of a garden-like city coming down from heaven and resting on the earth. It's what the Bible calls the marriage of heaven and earth once again. 
And at that time, everyone who, puts their, who has put their faith in Jesus will be resurrected as Jesus was and that we will live with him in this world that is made new. The eternity that he has placed in each one of our hearts is both something we look forward to one day in the future, but is also a present reality that we get to live into today in relationship with God. And that is good news. That is literally the end of my sermon. Um, I'm going to invite Jace to come on up. The, the thing is, there's a lot of sermons that we preach each week where we're really trying to give some tools and equipping and application. Okay, now go and do likewise. But on a day where we have kids present, um, or hopefully even just listening in, in the cafe, my heart is that we would be able to give them something that is the big picture of what it is that we actually believe. I'm far less concerned about my kids hearing the story of David and Goliath and thinking about how they can learn to be brave like David than I am about my children being given a framework and understanding what God is up to in this world and how they're called to participate. And the truth is that if we need to work hard to get that narrative into our children's lives, my goodness, how easy it is for us to lose sight of the big picture. Amen? And it's good every now and again to come back to the very simple gospel. Amen? Let's stand.